The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. And for those uh, loyal listeners who were listening to the show last week, you may recall that I said that this week we were going to be talking about the uh, American Alliance of Museums conference that just finished up in Atlanta. But, oops, I was wrong. That's not what we're talking about at all. But we do have conferences on a, on the brain, and this has been the, the uh, buzzword for the past uh, couple of weeks. And so today we are going to be talking about a recent conference, the Museums and the Web Conference, uh, sort of where high-tech and museums meet. Now, before I introduce my uh, guest today, who's who was our eyes and ears uh, for that conference, I just uh, want to reminisce a bit. Uh, I was at an early Museums in the Web conference. I re- frankly, I can't remember the year, but it was up in Boston. And one of the highlights of that com- that conference was listening to one of the MIT researchers in the Media Lab who had just created the first prototype of a wearable uh, technology. And it looked clunky as all get out. It looks something out of one of the first Star Wars movies and it had this big camera thing that came down over the eye but it still was the coolest thing I think I'd ever ever seen and I was reminded of that because I was just at the AAM conference and with my guest today Neil Stimler we used the next generation of of uh, Google Glasses or Apple Glasses, and they aren't so clunky looking. In fact, you can find a picture of me and Neil uh, uh, floating around on the web. Uh, they're actually pretty pretty uh, nice looking things, and the technology is there and it's moving forward. So it just reminds me of how much the Museums and the Web Conference really is truly on the cutting edge and the bleeding edge of technology. So with that, I want to introduce uh, my, my 
my guest, Neil Stimler. He is the Digital Asset Specialist in the Digital Media Department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, He forecasts digital trends, leads digitization efforts, and manages special digital media initiatives. Many, he participates in many global conferences. He blogs and publishes, and he is truly on the forefront of this digital world that that we are all living in today. So without further ado, Neil, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you made time for us today. Oh, thank you, Carol. I'm so excited to be here, and uh, I thought you looked excellent wearing Google Glass there at AAM. Oh, thank you. Uh, So, Neil, before we get started, I I know you wanted to just uh, share a little bit more with the audience about museums and the web and and who they are and what they do and the resources that are are available to all of us because of that organization. Exactly, exactly. So, Museums and the Web is a really special conference, and I wanted to give you sort of an overview of its structure and some of the people that are leading the organization so that your listeners can better uh, familiarize themselves with it. So it's run by two amazing couples, uh, Nancy Proctor, Titus Bicknell, and then Richard Cherry and Hiroko Casano. And you should follow them all on Twitter, um, at Nancy Proctor, at Titus Bicknell, at Rich Cherry. Uh, the publisher of Museums and the Web is Susan Chun. The Museums and the Web Conference also typically has now exhibition experiences, which are organized by Vince Deacon. And the social media curator is uh, Valeria Gasparotti. They also have a great app at their conferences, which is developed by the team at Story. Story spelled with a Q in the middle there. And their main website for the conference and the various activities is www.museumsandtheweb.com. So at this resource, you can find a number of important things that will guide you to understand the museum's web conference experience better. You can find uh, job postings, so the, the hot jobs in media technology. You can find comments from the community. You can submit proposals for conferences. One of the, the best features of the museums and the web conference is an award ceremony called Best of the Web. And this is where a jury of peers submit uh, for the community the best projects in the field and they're voted upon and awarded. Another really amazing resource that Museums in the Web offers is a bibliography. So unlike other conferences, Museums in the Web has published scholarly papers. And all of these scholarly papers are available on the bibliography section of the Museums in the Web website. And these are linked, they're open, and they're scholarly resources that are often shared amongst people in the field. And you can also buy them in print as well. Another section of the Museums in the Web website is called the Showcase. And this is an area that's documenting special projects and initiatives like MW Deep Dives, And one of those deep dives was held just a few years ago at Gallery One, which is at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And for those of you who don't know what Gallery One is, it's an interactive immersion technology space there at the Cleveland Museum of Art. There's also the MW Archive, which is an archive of all the past conferences going back to 1997. So it's a very deep resource there. And then I wanted to point out the two upcoming conferences for museums in the web. There's Museums in the Web Asia, which is taking place in Melbourne, Australia, from October 5th to 8th, 2015. And proposals are now open till May 15th. And then next year for Museums in the Web 2016, that's going to be in Los Angeles from April 6th to 9th. And keep an eye out for when those proposals are going to be open. As a museum technology conference, you can imagine that Museums in the Web is also very active on social media. So if you want to follow at MuseWeb on Twitter, the hashtag MuseWeb, which is commonly used, and then within a particular conference cycle, the hashtag for Twitter is usually MW in the year. You can also follow Museums in the Web on Instagram, Flickr, Facebook, Google+, and they have two YouTube channels, one where they host videos from past conferences like Lightning Talks and Keynotes, and then a special video channel that was available for the Museums the Web Forums Conference. 
You'll also find on SlideShare a popular social media site for sharing presentations, past conferences, usually with the hashtag MW and again the year. So for the most recent conference, that would be MW2015. So that's my introduction to the conference at the Carol. Well, that's fabulous, and thank you so much for sure. going into all of those details. It is, uh, you're right, it's a, it's a conference-slash-resource, uh, truly a, a, a community of Absolutely. people who are interested in, in, in digital issues and web development and how those, those things are affecting museums. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Now, I know there are a lot of events at conferences, so mm-hmm. can you tell us maybe what your favorite one was? Sure. Well, I'm actually an art historian who became a technologist, so my background was early on in German Expressionist prints and interwar American art. So as an art historian, of course, I have a love affair with the Art Institute of Chicago. And we had our our opening night reception there, and they also had uh, some great things that welcomed the museum community and the museums and the web community while we were there. So one of the great things, I actually tweeted a picture of this that the Art Institute of Chicago offers, is they offer charging stations and free and open Wi-Fi. So if you're in their modern modern cafe, uh, they have electric plugs where you can plug in your phone and charge up, and they offer free Wi-Fi, and the Art Institute also offers several applications, mobile applications, so they have a closer look at the collection, which is available for, for Apple operating system. They have tours for iOS and Android. They have one of the first digital membership cards uh, for iOS and Android, and they also have a member magazine for iPad. So not only do they create digital resources, they also make them available for use in the space by facilitating users' interactions with them. I think has a really key, important value there. They also had two really great exhibitions, which uh, gave me a lot of thought. Uh, One is a really excellent exhibition of Irish art history called Ireland at the Crossroads of Art and Design, and it's on view till uh, June 7th, 2015. And as as I said before, my background in in print art history, I really enjoyed uh, Burnishing the Night, which is an exploration of the mezzotint process, and that's open until May 31st. And the Mezzotint show is also fascinating to me thinking about, um, if you think about digital imagery and technology, the history of printmaking as being a part of that. And if we can maybe just for a moment think about Instagram perhaps as a contemporary way of exploring uh, mass imagery and culture and media. So maybe if we think about Mezzotint as a process of making prints, we can think about a filter on Instagram as another sort of treatment of images. So that was a lot of fun. They also had events at the Museums of Science and Industry, which is a really great place to explore in Chicago. It's a massive space, and they have parts of airplanes and uh, cyclones and all kinds of fun science demonstrations. So it was a great place to bring people together. That's wonderful. And I... I uh, I haven't been up to the the Art Institute for a while, but I am now putting that back on on my list. Uh, of course, I always love to be in the f- at at the field and it, at the Shedd Aquarium. Those are some of my old uh, childhood haunts. But that's really interesting. That that so they're not only just providing uh, apps uh, you know, to to gather information from the collection, but it seems to me that with by providing these charging stations and 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 Wi-Fi in the gallery, they really are communicating to their audience that, that they are on this, I guess, what, the same wavelength as uh, people? <laughs> the same frequency, the same, <laughs> the same network, yeah. Uh, yes. No, it's really, I think it's really important. You know, if a museum is, gonna, is going to um, make digital resources, it has to facilitate users and engage with them, with them. And the free Wi-Fi and charging stations are not only important for local visitors, but also international visitors. Uh, many people that come to the larger museums throughout the United States, they may be international and they may not have access to their data plans. So that free Wi-Fi is really key for interactions, both in applications that are built by the institution, but also social media engagement, which is very popular as well. How I, you know, of course, it's it's always difficult to uh, um, 
to judge when you go to a, an event like that because of course you're around museum people and yeah. they know how to be good visitors but mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had any sense from the people at the Art Institute uh, mm -hmm. how you know sort of what what their best practices are how they're going to be changing their apps how how their apps are really being used uh, were there were there any discussions about that because it seems like such a great case study yeah, well, there are people definitely from the Art Institute represented at the conference. I didn't have any direct conversations about their future plans, but that might be a great follow-up show for you is to check in with them and see what they're planning next. But these are just the available resources that I came into contact with and thought people should be aware of. Oh, absolutely. And and thanks for the thought. I will I will be doing that uh, in the next couple of months. I think that that would be great. Um, now, I know you had a couple of other things that you really wanted to focus on in the show yes. today. So yes. uh, I am giving the reins over to you. Okay, great. I did want to mention one other special event that happens at the conference. It's called the Birds of a Feather Breakfast. It's really fun. It usually takes place, I think, on Saturday mornings. And what it is is it's roundtable discussions about important issues for the field. And the great thing about the Birds of the Feather Breakfast is that at this point, uh, people have usually kind of made friends already or met some of their former colleagues or reconnected. And what it does is it brings people around different themes and topics that we're all sort of discussing in the museum technology field and gives that kind of casual conversation a boost with some coffee and refreshment on, on the morning of the conference. And it's a really great kind of social gathering. If people can move from table to table and talk to each other about projects. So I think it's another great feature of the conference. Uh, for me overall, the, as someone who works in, in digital collections at the Metropolitan, my focus is really kind of getting into those, those sessions as well. So I'm going to focus on most of that as my sort of takeaways from the conference. And just as a reminder, you know, the museum field is far from finished being digitizing with collections with good core metadata, more complete and nuanced cataloging, such as bibliography and provenance, provenance excuse me, and also just even still images of objects in our collection. There was, of course, discussion and excitement around the 3D modeling or 3D, image, 3D imagery, but this is something that's very much still evolving. Um, among the best known examples of 3D modeling in museums now is our colleagues at the Smithsonian, who have their Smithsonian X3D website, which you can visit at uh, 3d.si.edu. One of the keys, I think, for the efficient and streamlined processing of digital missions um, in the 21st century is working with open data and digital assets. And these are really among the most valuable resources that museums can share openly with businesses, developers, digital humanities scholars, and the public. Open access to data and digital assets is where museums can measurably scale interaction with constituents. Institutions like the Cooper Hewitt, uh, the Tate, Walters Art Museum, Yale University Art Gallery, Yale Center for British Art, the Getty, National Gallery of Art, LACMA, Los Angeles, and the Rikes Museum are among the leaders making commitments to serve constituents with open access policies that foster use and reuse of digital assets and data. And to best leverage data and digital assets, museums can continue to reorganize their, their teams and break down those internal silos and create more standardized and templated workflows that can really scale operations. The challenge with the data and digital assets is that it's no longer affordable to be a catch-up in this process, but really key to the daily operations of museums, especially as we were talking before about these mobile interactions people are having on mobile and wearable technologies. So some of the great presentations that I experienced came from, the first one was from the Dallas Museum of Art, which was uh, led by Sean Oberoi and Kristen Arnold. And they have a grant to digitize a lot of their collections there in Dallas, and they're working with organizing their digital asset management systems and collections management to really scale the digitization. So they were talking about the, the way to effectively streamline and do that process efficiently. It was a great example. Uh, the Tate uh, presented on integrating their archival collections with collections in their accession object pool. 
So this is taking together maybe in the past and within a museum would have been seen as two discrete collections and bringing them together in one search experience. So it's a really good case study to check out. And then the J. Paul Getty Museum presented um, their new digital object repository, or DOOR, and that was done by Daniel Sisman. The Getty, of course, like, uh, like the Smithsonian and Tate and other large institutions, has incredible resources both in its museum collection but also its research institute. And so this is bringing together an information and data layer that makes the collections more searchable and usable to people. Of course, we also have to acknowledge uh, probably one of our great technology stars this year, uh, the Cooper Hewitt Museum, which has just been reopened, and a lot of excitement in the museum technology community around that, especially with their interactive pen project. But the, one of the key things that is often mentioned by, by Seb Chan, Aaron Cope, and Michael Walter, and others at the Cooper Hewitt Labs is the importance of the data structure that makes that kind of technology possible. And so I wanted to point people to a great resource that the Cooper Hewitt offers uh, where all their open source projects are available. And so that's www.cooperhewitt.org slash open source at Cooper Hewitt. You can find all the information there. Another, These, uh, oh, I'm yes, sorry. Go right ahead. ahead. No, no I was good. No, that uh, that's how that sounds great. You're on a, you're on quite a roll. Uh, mm -hmm. There's so much data to uh, well, literally data to to be mined and data to be found. Yeah. Uh, I think if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is. Uh, take our our scheduled break a Excellent. tiny tiny bit early and when we come back I know you have more on this this open access question and uh, and perhaps we can just talk a little bit about what wouldn't be open access I think mm -hmm. sometimes these things seem so obvious to right. us and we sort of wonder why anyone wouldn't do it that way right. uh, and right. I find that some sometimes a, a useful discussion to sure. have so absolutely Fabulous, fabulous. Neil, I am so thrilled. Uh, I can just still hear your enthusiasm for the conference, and that is in, infectious. And so we will be back in a moment. Uh, remember, uh, you may always... Uh, drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at, at MuseWrite, R-I-T-E. And I love to hear from my listeners to know this is a show for you. And so I'd like to know what topics you feel that we should be covering and talking about today. Uh, we will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. 
Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And this week I have with me Neil Stimler. And he is sharing with us the highlights of the Museum and the Web Conference that was held in Chicago a few weeks ago. And right before we went to break, Neil was talking about some of the uh, presentations uh, from other institutions around the country and how they are dealing with the issues of open access. And as Neil and I went to break, we realized that while many of you know what open access is, and it just seems like such an obvious thing to be doing, uh, some institutions still aren't doing it or have some fears about doing it, and therefore they aren't really uh, positioning themselves to be uh, allowing their data to be as used uh, and and as and widely available as it could be. So I asked Neil if he would just step back for us uh, just for a moment and just explain the open access issue a little bit more. Sure, Carol, happy to do that. And I want to start actually by pointing to two really great resources that will help people find out more information. So one of them is openglam.org. So OpenGLAM is a website and resource that is sponsored by the Open Knowledge Foundation. And it provides links, case studies, helpful examples, and resources on all the various open access initiatives happening in galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. So that's openglam.org. That's a great resource. Another important resource is Creative Commons. And Creative Commons is a policy and licensing structure that enables content creators to permission their data and their assets, or in some cases when the materials are public domain, market them as such, in a way that allows other people to use them. Both human beings can read these inf- this information about the licensing, and so can machines. So this is a very valuable thing when you're building web- websites or web applications. And open access more generally is when, you, when a museum has the opportunity with its collections, if it has collections that are in the public domain, for example, um, it has the opportunity to make those more widely available to scholars, researchers, and developers, people making applications for mobile devices, 
An example of that could be um, Musee, which is M-U-Z-E-I. It's an app that I have on my phone and my smartwatch, my Moto 360 smartwatch, that gives me a new painting every day from, that's taken from a museum collection online. And so that developer uh, who built that app was able to, to build that and share it with uh, the Android platform because it was taking open access content. So that's more of a kind of introduction to open access. That uh, that's very that's very helpful, Neil. Just as a sidelight, uh, uh, because you you have such great perspective in this area. Uh, are do you find that most museums are getting on the open access bandwagon, so to speak, or are are, are there holdouts? I mean, why wouldn't you be doing this if you were a public institution? Well, it depends on the institution and the nature of their collections, um, what, what they can what they can make available under current conditions. Um, it also is a long it's a long standing shift, sort of in our the way we thinking thinking about how we serve our public. So, um, thinking less about museums as keepers of things, but as museums as places where we share. Uh, so, actually, uh, later today, uh, what's going to be happening at the um, at the University of Pennsylvania is my colleague, Will Knoll, who used to be at the Walters Art Museum, is going to be making available through the Kislak Center a whole new set of open data and images related to medieval manuscripts. And in this promotional video that he has available on YouTube for this announcement, he talks about the importance of our data living, that data and our collections are living things. And for them to continue to live in a digital world, they have to be shared. So that's really where the key shift is. Um, each institution really should you know, think carefully about their steps for open access, consult the appropriate administrative and legal questions as needed. But if it's, if it's, if it's something that's possible to do, it really does help the, the growth of engagement. And uh, Will points out in this video as well that with open data and open collections, we really can reach global audiences with our global collections. Yes, uh, and I think that that is is critically important. Uh, it always seems to me when I'm I'm in the digital world, all of a sudden, all barriers and all boundaries and geopolitical issues sort of melt away, and my audience can. That when I think about audience, it takes on a whole new connotation, and I am sure it is because of of people like you and and others who have been really focusing on the importance of open access. So thank. You very much. Certainly. So you have other uh, examples to give us. I know about open uh, some of the open access issues, and then you are going to move on into another area. So why don't uh, please continue with some of the highlights of the conference? Sure, sure. So to also mention, uh, while we're discussing open access, there was a great session at the conference chaired by Peter Adamczyk of the Google Cultural Institute on linked open data. So this is, again, about that data question, making data available. And the common term that we use in the museum field for discussing this in the case of libraries, archives, and museums is LODLAM. So it's L-O-D-L-A-M. So that's one of our sort of acronyms that we use. And there was a great uh, session in this, in this professional forum on the importance of good metadata from Sarah Vella, who's from the University of Alberta, Canada. And she was talking about just the importance of good metadata practices. Um, so metadata it means data about data. So if we think about object labels, if we think about our collections management systems, if we think about digital assets, all of these, in order to be understood in context, need information to help us describe them, search for them, and use them. That's what metadata is. And when you're working in your organization, depending on what kind of collection you have, it's really key in your digital strategy to think about what are the core pieces of metadata that make an asset useful to you. And that can be in deployed in multiple contexts. That could be deployed on a mobile device. It could be done on a website. It could be on signage in the galleries. 
So just thinking critically about establishing workflows and digitization that really help you uh, move more quickly through that process and efficacy. So that was a great presentation, a great session. Linked Open Data is still an ongoing project uh, for many museums and communities, but we're all looking together to work towards a shareable standards that help us work our collections together. Another important thing I wanted to share was um, the Provenance Research Project that was at the Carnegie Museum of Art called Art Tracks. And that was presented by uh, Tracy Burke Fulton, uh, David Newberry, and Travis Snyder. And so they had an IMLS grant, the Institute of Museums and Library Services grant, to focus on provenance issues. And provenance is the history and life of objects as they, as they go through until they're acquired and even beyond in institutions. That was a great project. So that was called Art Tracks. And then another important thing I wanted to share was uh, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art gave a presentation on their API. And an API is an application programming interface. It's a set of routines and protocols that people need for building software applications. So I'd recommend people take a look at the SFMOMO API. And then, although not um, discussed directly at the conference, as I can remember, uh, the Warhol Museum just recently released their digital strategy, and that's by Jeffrey Insko. He's at StaticMate on Twitter. And one of the special things about the release of this digital strategy is that the strategy was published on a platform called GitHub. Uh, GitHub is uh, G-I-T-H-U-B. And this is a software development platform where uh, coders, people that are building applications, will put the software they design and oftentimes make it openly available for others to build on and share. So this is actually a really interesting model that some museums are experimenting with as well for a digital publication. So it's not just a place for thinking about uh, developing applications for websites or mobile, but also maybe even a tool for publishing scholarly research or museum publications. This is so very interesting, and and I will admit to you that it is not my wheelhouse, as you know, and so I appreciate you you taking the time and defining some of these terms for me. But, you know, one of the things that is striking me, and perhaps, you know, I, obviously, you know, I, you're only giving me a snapshot of the conference, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that it is these larger institutions, you know, your institution, the Met, and SF Moment, some of the others that you've mentioned that mm. are able to do the not only they have time to do the thinking they have the staff who are are creative and have these expertise but they really are leading the way for all museums and smaller institutions who will be able to take advantage of these things in the future is that is that about right are we still working you know the big big players are having to mm-hmm. work out the details first well, I think the great thing about the digital tools in many cases is that they're more accessible to more people. So a lot of the software and things that I've been mentioning are opening to a broad spectrum of types of institutions. And this is maybe a shift, too, of how we do our work for museums because so much of our work is reliant upon these digital infrastructures. The way we staff, the way we execute our work is becoming more reliant upon these platforms. So this is where small museums and regional museums can adapt as well to increase with the expectations of their user community who may be using their mobile devices to engage the institution as a primary way of interaction. So the, our, it's great that our, our, big, uh, our big colleague museums can show us examples of their projects, and a lot can be learned from those. So I think it's a very valuable spectrum to see. And, you know, and it seems to me, uh, just while we're staying on the collection focus a little bit, that mm-hmm. I have, uh, maybe I've been living under a rock, but it seems to <laughs> 
It seems to me that uh, every time I read something from you know one of our our uh, associations, uh, and they talk about the the value of of museums and 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 why they are val- valued in hollowed institutions, and they talk mm. about collection care and the importance of collection care, I don't recall hearing a lot about this this aspect that you're talking about which is clearly taking a great deal of of thought and and time and resources and that is uh, how you digitize these things and digitize them in ways that you can make available to a wider audience uh, and you can find the data uh, exactly. That seems to me to be a huge job uh, that our cultural community is doing, and it seems as if you—it's it, sort of the 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 quiet, unsung uh, part of the uh, of of the equation. I mean, do you find when you're talking with your colleagues at, at say this conference in particular, mm-hmm. which seems to be a little more technical, uh, are are they are they frustrated by that? Well, I don't think I don't think of it as a frustration. I think of it as a commitment, <laughs> as a commitment to um, making our institutions as robust as they can be. And if we think about collecting museums, not all museums collect, but you know, when we look back to our mission statements, these are founding principles of why we exist as institutions: the building of our collections for the study and enjoyment of the public. So, just as we did that in the past with index cards, three by five index cards that may have been typed or handwritten or paperwork in the past. That was important for our processing then to make our materials accessible. But building the digital infrastructure, building the workflows to make the data and the assets available allows us to do so much more as institutions and serve a much broader audience. So it enables the types of programs that can be facilitated by educators and by conservators um, in their work, in their daily work. So it may not be as um, noticeable in terms of the daily operations of museums, but it's the backbone of everything we do. Well, I still think you're the unsung heroes, whether you're frustrated <laughs> or not. So, uh, and I am so glad that you are all there. Uh, and I'm sorry I missed the conference. I, I think you're very interesting people uh, to talk to. Right. Um, Thank you. Do you? Uh, so, you wanted to talk about uh, some other trends and some yes. other ideas as well. Yes. I know you had another deep focus, and I don't exactly. want to keep so you from that Exactly. So, another idea. area I wanted to point out was analytics and evaluation of metrics. So, analytics is using tools like Google Analytics to try to get a better understanding of who our users are at museums and how they're using our websites and applications and how we can better leverage these tools to understand our audiences and if you retool our focus. One of the great panels was uh, with David Clevin of the Holocaust Museum, Dana Ellen Greel from the National Gallery of Art, and my colleague here at the Metropolitan, uh, Loic Talon. And they actually worked together over a period of months to share data with each other in conversations through uh, remote video conferencing and just dialoguing and tossing ideas back and forth. And I think one of the great virtues of that session was just one of the, I think, with the backbone values of the museum community, which is collegiality and support, mutual support. And for people that are whether at a history museum or a science museum or an art museum, if you have a, a friend or colleague that you really value and trust, an institution that you put a lot of emphasis on, take the time to reach out to your colleagues and find ways to share information with them about your experiences. It's these little ways um, that we can really help each other a lot. So I wanted to point to that as a really valuable experiment in terms of collaboration. 
Another important example that I wanted to share was by um, Elena Villespia, who is uh, now at the Met, but formerly at the Tate. And she's really the museum guru for museum analytics. And she's done a lot of great research uh, at the Tate on this. And you can find her research on their Tate websites and blogs and also at the museums and the web paper. And a third session I wanted to focus on with metadata and analytics is uh, my colleague Darren Milligan and Melissa Wadman at the Smithsonian. And they've been doing a lot of important work at the Center for Learning and Digital Access at the Smithsonian around educational metadata and resources. So thinking critically how teachers and students find the resources that museums create and make them more usable for their curriculums. So that's sort of my focus on analytics and evaluation and metrics. There were also some great workshops at the conference, which usually take place on the earlier days, about teaching people specifically how to better leverage various software tools to help them with that. That's uh, that's very near and dear to my heart, of course. With the uh, uh, with the radio show, I, I of course uh, Voice America gives me some fabulous data, but of course I always want to know more. It seems it's very it, to me it's very challenging to shift from. Uh, a practice which was, you know, going up and talking to people, and 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 each little data point had a face. And mm-hmm. now looking at at uh, data where I'm, you know, we're we're tracking users and and how many people have have uh, looked at certain areas. But it's difficult for me to really put a face on that. Is that mm-hmm. some of the work that that your colleagues have been doing with these with these analytic uh, discussions? Yes, it's trying it's trying to get past under understanding um, our visitors in a very opaque way and to trying to look as much as possible with the digital tools we do have into their insights and patterns and behaviors so we can better adjust ourselves to serve them. So analytics and data science, I think, is going to be especially important for museums to pay attention to. Can you give me an, an example, perhaps, of, of uh, sort of what these, this group at, at, say, the Smithsonian was doing on educational, um, uh, trying to, to find a way for uh, teachers, per se, to get the data that they need and find the things that they need? Right. So I'm going to try to pull up an example here, um, learning and digital access. Well, one idea, as far as I know, and you can uh, talk to at Darren Milligan on Twitter for more information about that, is I think with the educational metadata, they're trying to use metadata that is more of the language of educators and students versus the language, let's say, of art historians to describe things. So an example that I can think of, although I don't know if it's directly applied to the Smithsonian example, is let's say we have a scene of Diana and the Hunt. Um, Typically, an art historian would describe it as such, but if we think about other types of ways of approaching that same object or that same theme, we might say woman and deer. We might use different words, different language, and metadata to describe that that experience or that asset. So I think it's thinking about our audiences and how they describe and search for our materials, and also the, the view of the specialist and bringing those together in alignment so that we can make the information around those objects and collections much more useful to both constituencies. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That is very, very helpful. And again, it is. it all comes down to language and vocabulary, doesn't it? Yes, and it's, it's trying, to, trying to meet people where they are. So, and if, of course, if someone has the interest to learn the language of, of, of the discipline, that's excellent, and we certainly want that as well. But making the entry points easier to find, I think, is always a very valuable thing to do. Great, yes. So with that, I think this is a logical time to make our second break. And when we come back, I know Neil still has a great deal to share with us uh, for this very, very fascinating conference. So stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I've been here today talking with Neil Stimler of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And Neil was our eyes and ears at the Museum and the Web Conference. And uh, Neil, you have done such a great job of sharing with all of our listeners not only some of the exciting things that were going on in the conference, as well as reminding all of us the great resource that the Museum and the Web uh, website is, uh, particularly with uh, publications that go back uh, significantly. And we can, I think. I think that's going to be a great resource for historians as well to sort of track the progress and the thought process of, uh, of how museums and other cultural organizations have uh, applied digital thinking and the tools uh, that are 
available to us to their museum practice. And right before break, we were talking about the importance of analytics, of really trying to figure out not only what we can do with the data, how we can get it back in meaningful ways, but more importantly, looking empathetically at our users uh, and realizing that we have different users, they have different backgrounds, and they have different needs, and therefore a different vocabulary uh, in in uh, in trying to make this this data available and sort of, I, I guess I would consider it sort of the democratization of data, uh, which is is so very important. Now, and I know you have a few more more topics that you uh, you want to cover, sort of trends in the uh, uh, that you observed over the the uh, uh, two or three days of the conference. So yeah. if, uh, please share those with us as well. Well, I wanted to respond first to your, your your previous comment there, and just thinking about the shift sort of now from from access to museum collections to use. So, in the past, or we maybe thought about museum collections and resources, something that we came to look at, or we came to to view. Now we think about them as things that we actually use ourselves. That the museum is about use and activity and activation, and that happens both in education programs. It happens in relationship to collections and data. But I think we're seeing a shift from merely just access to use and reuse. I think it's an important shift that we're observing, and that's demonstrated was demonstrated in multiple places in the conference. Another uh, point to reference as well when you were talking about the great resources of museums and the web is uh, museums and the web is active all year round. So following uh, at MuseWeb on Twitter is really helpful, and you'll see lots of conversations there with the hashtag MuseWeb where people that are working in the museums and technology sector are having dialogues and conversations and sharing links to valuable resources and blog posts that end up being the body of the conference at each year. So that's a really valuable thing to keep an eye on. Uh, one of the things that I also was focusing on um, at the conference was uh, the Google Art Project and the Google Cultural Institute. So uh, many uh, museums have now signed on to this, this program. And what I found interesting about the program was the way that uh, Google and the Cultural Institute has brought together different types of institutions in one unified platform, be it libraries, archives, and museums. And for me, thinking about metadata, I think this is especially interesting to see how these different types of institutions have come together. And Google is also developing other new tools, um, like mobile app experiences in partnership with institutions, so they can help uh, with the data and the content that the institution provides as a partner, help build mobile apps for those institutions. And they've also built another tool called Exhibit Builder. So earlier on in the Google Art Project experience, um, at many cases it was an institutional name and the street view experience like you would have if you're driving a car on the street if you use Google Maps, and some highlights from the collections. And now they've built a new tool called the Exhibition Builder. And this allows institutions to build online exhibition content um, on, the, on the Google platform to tell stories and narratives. So that's a nice feature they have as well. So they've been developing this further. And I find it very interesting to see how uh, an institution like Google, which is basing itself in the culture of the web, is interacting with museum institutions. And so it just provides a lot of, I think, interesting food for thought and reflection looking at that content experience. That is interesting. Now, let's, um, if you don't mind, just sort of maybe walk me through, I, uh, going back to our earlier conversation about the importance of open access. Mm-hmm. And now we have uh, uh, an institution uh, such as Google, and mm-hmm. they are 
facilitating, they also seem to be facilitating uh, use and, and, and uh, distribution of, of these, these uh, wonderful cultural assets, perhaps to even a wider audience. Uh, maybe there are people who don't consider themselves museum goers, but mm-hmm. they're interested in a certain type of artwork or a certain type of historical event or materials. You know, maybe they like uh, uh, horse armor and now they can it sounds as if they can they could look at all the horse armor that might be around the world is that yeah the, the cultural how they're facilitating it yeah the cultural institute platform brings together different types of collections that are all in, individually in partnership with google um, to view content in this, this this platform so if you were searching on their site for horse armor as you were saying you might get multiple results from different institutions all across the world which is kind of exciting, I think, in terms of my own interest in discovering art and culture, things that I would have never even known about before. Uh, they've also been experimenting with uh, 3D modeling. So again, going back to our conversation earlier with 3D imaging, thinking about and, rem- and remembering, uh, let's go back to the example of horse armor, that armor is actually sculpture, perhaps, in some ways, right? It's a three-dimensional object. It has shapes. It has different points of view, thinking about it in relationship in space. So pioneering those 3D technologies and sharing them with museums is a valuable way for us to think about interaction and interpretation of them on new, on new digital platforms. So, um, you know, I never thought about this before, but then as I I've, have admitted several times in this show, this is not an area that I give a lot of thought to, and that's why mm-hmm. it's so exciting to me. But are, are we imagining that in the very near future, say a teacher who is, I don't know, maybe she's talking about horse armor uh, in, mm-hmm. in her class, and would she be able to say go you know you do a google search find mm-hmm. an interesting piece of horse armor and then actually do a little 3d print up for her class well i think you know 3d 3d printing is is possible the repository that i know of now that um you can find things you can find 3d models um one of them is called thingiverse it's a place where you can find 3d models but i think 3d printing in classrooms is something that the smithsonian has also been supportive of so it's definitely something that people are excited about for teaching tools. And that actually is a, a way for me to transition, I think, to my next topic area, which is accessibility, uh, the importance of making museums accessible to people with different needs, both uh, physically and emotionally and psychologically. And an important presence and, and voice at the museums, the web conference, and in many conferences is uh, a gentleman by the name of Sina Bahram and his company, Prime Access Consulting. And uh, Sina often gives feedback to different museums that are building applications and websites on how to make their collections more accessible. And I think one of the very valuable things that he does for us in the community is it really humanizes and thoughtfully and carefully reminds us when we're building digital resources about making those accessible to as many people as possible and how we design them and how we build them. Can you give an example? Certainly. So on a web page, for example, it's important to code things in a certain way so that a person who may be using a computer, for example, who's blind or low vision can use other types of software to discover that web page. So if we think about art museums, for example, we're often very visually oriented, right? We may create a splashy page, a splashy welcome page, or a banner of some kind. But if we really think about how we structure uh, the content of those web pages and resources so that people that are perhaps blind or low vision can have access to them in 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 an as equal as possible experience to those people that are perhaps uh, sighted. That's very interesting, and I, I'm, I mean, just going back to our other example, uh, I know one of the, uh, it would be interesting as well as if some of these uh, 
uh, say sculptures could be printed in three dimensions, then mm-hmm. someone who wanted to to really explore it tactily uh, would would be able to do that. Yes, and I would say many of the the great art museums in the United States, and I'm, I'm assuming as probably as well for natural history museums and science museums, have interactive touch experiences. Uh, with certain types of collections that facilitate experiences for blind and low vision visitors where they can have a more tactile experience. So 3D printing is an opportunity there. And also just thinking about, about our digital resources um, when we develop applications and we develop web websites and web pages, making those as, as useful to a broad, broad audience as possible. And I'm assuming then that this would also uh, cover, uh, say, tablets and smartphones. I know there, yes, it across, used to be... Exactly, across, across the ecosystem of devices, yes. Fabulous. So, so the, so the, the uh, several years ago when we were uh, trying to do um, uh, uh, audio description for all of, of the, say, interactives or the media mm-hmm. programs in a, yes. in a museum, which can be... A, extremely expensive and daunting to many museums and and unfortunately as a result uh, it's not as universally universally applicable as we would hope. Uh, It sounds as if these new technologies are going to allow uh, people who are visiting the museums who perhaps uh, have limited sight or or want an audio description, they would just be able to get that on their phone uh, regardless of whether the museum provides it or not. Is that hopefully where the future's going? I think there are underlying technologies that make that possible, but I hope as well that museums will continue to make accessibility an important priority for um, their digital projects. And um, especially with thinking about global audiences or people that aren't in our immediate communities that whose, whose primary contact may, may be with a museum through a digital platform. So that may be the, one of the most important points we have to interact with that community. And actually, where I'd like to transition to sort of my last, my last theme, um, talking about the museums and the web community and a community initiative that's just been launched um, called Hashtag Museum Women. And this is an initiative that has been championed by my colleague, Emily Little Painter. Uh, she's at Museum of Emily on Twitter and my colleague, Brinker Ferguson, at Brinker F on Twitter. And this is an initiative that's really focusing on building uh, the role and the, the role of women in leadership and community within the museum technology circles. And so I would urge you to visit uh, museumwomen.wordpress.com to register to be part of that conversation and then join that conversation as well on Twitter with the hashtag MuseWomen. Thank you very, very much. That's very interesting. I actually have been reading quite a bit about the disparity uh, in um, men and women who are going into and and then, frankly, being able to take leadership roles in uh, technology. I, I, I'll uh, think about it as a akin to my my uh, my sisters who have been in the engineering and mathematics fields. Those are mm. also fields that have been traditionally difficult for uh, women to uh, find their voice. Uh, I I suppose so. That's very interesting that this is coming up through the this conference and and through this group of uh, very highly uh, professional women as well. Uh, given that the museum community is seventy five percent or more women uh, in the workforce. Yes, well, I think it's an it's an important issue that I know people are passionate about, and I know from my own personal experience that I've had incredible women who have been mentors and leaders in my career, and I'm very grateful for them and for my colleagues, Emily and Brinker, for their leadership to the field. So I hope that people will continue to support their efforts and, and have a broader conversation about those issues. And that leads me to 
really closing about just the reflection on the museums and the web community more broadly in the museum technology community. It's incredibly dedicated. It's passionate. Um, these people are really a family, I would say, throughout the world. Um, people come to the museums. We have conference from Europe and uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, all over the world to be part of this family. And every time we come together, both in physical space and in our conversations online, it's really a community of support and nurturing that is trying to help uh, advance each other's projects in our larger field forward. So if you're not participating yet in the museums and the web and the museum technology community, please feel that it's completely open and welcoming to you for engagement. Well, thank you, Neil. That's a that's a wonderful wrap up. As as I said, I have not been to been able to be at the conference for several years, but I certainly found that uh, the few times I have had an opportunity, and I would just I would encourage all museum professionals to attend this conference at least once in your career, whether this is your particular area of expertise or not. Uh, we tend to get so siloed and focused. Uh, perhaps uh, some of you are like I am. We're a little intimidated by some of these terms and the technologies that that aren't our, in our everyday speech, but I think that you will, uh, you'll now know uh, that Neil is a wonderful representative of that community and can make every can speak in uh, in in language that all of us can understand, and I think together we can have some really fabulous fabulous conversations to move the museum and the uh, digital communities forward together. Uh, and so, so Neil, thank you so very very much for taking the time both at the conference to make sure that you provided this sort of wide sweep and also for your very thoughtful presentation today. It was really, really fabulous. Oh, thank you, Carol. My absolute pleasure. And so uh, I'm a big fan of Museum Life, and I encourage all of you to keep listening to Carol. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And so, of course, remember, you can also uh, follow Neil on Twitter at Neil uh, Stimler, and he also has a great LinkedIn uh, profile where he publishes on Pulse quite often, and I find these articles very interesting and accessible. And you will love his Instagram at uh, Instagram at Neil Stimler, uh, which is a very different aspect of Neil, but it uh, helps round out the person. So again, Neil, thank you so much for being on the show, and next week we will uh, have several people who were involved in the American Alliance of Museums conference last week in Atlanta, and that conference topic, of course, was on social justice, and, and it was terribly poignant to be in Atlanta with so many things happening in uh, Baltimore and other cities around the country, and so we'll be talking about uh, those those ironies and those issues and the museum's uh, commitment and responsibility uh, next week. So until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.